Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Samuel, and there's a reason for that. There was a passage I didn't want to preach. And it's this passage that we're looking at tonight. And the reason I didn't want to preach it is because I felt, in the early part of this year, I felt as if God had forsaken me, or I had forsaken God, or something along those lines. And I, I didn't want to think about this passage. Um, there, I mean, this happens quite often. There, the Lord makes pastors preach passages they don't really want to preach. And whether that's because they have personal sins they're dealing with or whether it's because they know it's going to be a bomb that's set off in the church or whether it's, um, whether it's just a hard passage and it takes a lot of work to get to it. This one was more what I was dealing with uh, personally with anxiety and um, just being very confused about it and struggling. And I didn't, uh, I didn't really want to think about this. Um, Uh, Spurgeon said when he came to Psalm 51, he said, I postponed expounding it week after week. And Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. I postponed expounding it week after week, feeling more and more my inability for the work. Often I sat down to it and rose up again without having penned a line. Such a psalm may be wept over, it may be absorbed into the soul and exhaled again in devotion but commented on? Where is he who, having attempted it, uh, can do other than blush at his defeat? So, I mean, that's Spurgeon, too, and Spurgeon could preach, right? And so he, he week after week, delayed going to Psalm 51 because, partially because, you know, he he was feeling it, and um, sometimes you just want to read the passage and and that's it. And there's nothing you can add. There's nothing you should add at points. Um, and so I, I avoided this this passage, and I think you'll see see why as um, as I read it. So First Samuel 16, we'll pick up at 14. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. 
Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Now, just to take us back a little bit of review, uh, since it's been a while since we've been here, Saul has been progressively disobeying God. Uh, he disobeyed, he, he disobeyed, you remember, in the matter with the Amalekites. All was to be destroyed, and yet not everything was destroyed. Not everything was devoted to the ban. They were to destroy uh, the, the, the people, the livestock, and everything. But um, Agag, the leader of the Malachites, was spared. And the best of the animals, you remember that? He spared the best of the animals and then was like, well, we'll use them to sacrifice to God. Um, Samuel rebukes Saul. That's 1 Samuel 15. Those very um, memorable words, 15.22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Right, And then it's shortly after that that David is anointed by Samuel. And yet it is ten years before David becomes the king of Israel. Um, so there is about 10 years of overlap where Saul and David are uh, sometimes close and then further and further distanced apart because of Saul's sin toward David. So Samuel also and Saul no longer see one another. The prophet is no longer speaking to Saul. Uh, the last message has been delivered to him. They see each other no longer. Um, it's right before this passage, 1 Samuel 16:13 where David is anointed the verse before where I started reading right then Saul took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward and Samuel arose and went to Ramah so so we see the spirit rushing upon David and then the very next verse is now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. It comes on David, it departs from Saul. Um, remember Saul, how I described Saul. Oh, the other thing to remember about Saul is early on he was humble. Remember, he, he didn't, those who uh, disobeyed him, he didn't want to discipline. He didn't want to, um, but his humility had changed to, it changes from, protecting people to murderous hatred, particularly of David, whom our passage describes as one whom Saul loved at this point, right? Um, but remember how I described Saul. I described him as an unregenerate man who had the Spirit work on him. He had the Spirit work on him, but not in him, right? The Spirit came upon him in, in the sense of it 
set him apart for leading and for being king, just like the judges, that the Spirit came on them and sort of, you know, marked them out for the work of leading. And so when we see, you know, when we see passages that say that the Spirit came upon him, I think we need to understand them as it wasn't the regenerating work of the Spirit, but more of a, a spirit to, um, uh, of, of the that the judges received. Um, his, you remember this also about Saul. He, his outward appearance was glorious, right? What does Scripture say about Saul? Yeah, he was ahead above everybody else. He was the, the picture of what a king should look like, right? And um, we also receive information about the appearance of David in this passage. And David is also a handsome man, it says. But then it goes on to describe not just his outward appearance, but his, the, the inward reality of his life. The Lord is with him. Right? And it does not say that of, of Saul when it's describing his appearance. So verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Um, Saul, is, Saul is now utterly given over to evil. The Spirit departs. There will no longer be restraint to his actions. Um, or, or victories through his leadership, right? God is no longer blessing him, even in a non-regenerative way. He, he is now being afflicted by an evil spirit that terrorizes him. Um, the contrast, again, between David and Saul is stark. The, the spirit comes upon David, the spirit leaves Saul. Um, this is the only time in the Old Testament that the Spirit is said to leave someone. This is the only time we read of something like this. This is not, this is not a common occurrence. This is not a common description of, of any of the men that we think may have, may have apostatized from the faith or may have been um, rotten. In fact, we see, we see the opposite in a lot of cases. We see men like Manasseh toward the end of his life, come to know God after he had ravaged Israel with bloodshed and wickedness and set up idols in the temple. He goes the opposite way, and near the end of his life, it seems as if he repents, right? And, and it says, Scripture says, and then he knew God, right? And um, Ahab, right? There's, there's repentance. That, and so we see things go the opposite way at times, and yet here... Uh, God has taken this first king that the people called for, and it's gotten to the point where the spirit departs. And they now have a king who is devoid of, of the Lord. So this is the only time in the Old Testament that the spirit is said to leave someone. Was, was Saul aware of this de departure? You think Saul was aware of this departure? Well, it could be. In, in chapter 18, in uh, 12 and 13, it says, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as the commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. So there is something there that seems as if 
Saul could perceive that David was, had the spirit, and, and he no longer had the spirit. And it makes him react very negatively to David, put him on the front lines. And, um, and so uh, it seems that Saul has some, some knowledge of the spirit's disappearance, but he certainly has a knowledge of the terrorizing of an evil spirit sent from the Lord. Right? He has a knowledge of that um, because it's, it's his daily affliction and he uh, has to turn to the soothing music to help him. Um, so what do we make of this, this evil spirit from the Lord? What do we make of this? Is this, um, is this God being an author of sin? Is this God doing something illicit? Um, no, it's not. This, this, in a sense, can be explained very easily. It's no different than when God allowed his own son to be tempted by the devil, right? The Holy Spirit takes Jesus out to the wilderness in order to be afflicted by the evil one himself, right? And, of course, Jesus um, under, undergoes that test with flying colors and resists the devil and fights him with the sword of the Spirit, and, and there's, there's a conquering of, of the evil one there. Um, think about Job. Same thing with Job, right? Satan asked for permission from God that he might afflict Job. And Job is crying out, Ugh, this is horrible. Why? And he, I mean, and, and his words verge on sin. But it says with his mouth he did not sin. Right? But, but he's crying out to God, why is, this ha- you know, why is this evil? His whole family is destroyed. His body is, is broken down. He's, he's uh, scraping his wounds with, a, a, with clay. And so, um, in a sense, it's the same thing here. Um, this, this spirit of calamity, this spirit of distress, the spirit of affliction is sent to afflict Saul. Um, One commentary said, because Saul persisted in rebellion, he grieved the spirit, driving him out and leaving room for seven demons to come in to torment him. Right? You, You grieve the spirit, the spirit departs, as it says here, and he is... Then, then there's room for the demons to come and torment him. Uh, the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible that was produced in the, by Calvin and others in Geneva, and um, English translation, they have notes throughout the scriptures giving the meanings of, of certain texts. And the Geneva Bible note on this verse says, The wicked spirits are at God's command to execute his will against the wicked. Right? So, so he's, he's directing, this is God's sovereign power over even demons. God's sovereign power even over the wicked, uh, the, the wicked one, Satan. Right? God has power. It is only by permission that the evil one does his work. And so here, Saul has, the, soul, the, the spirit has departed and... 
the wicked spirits are now at God's command to afflict Saul. Um, another, another commentary said, God gives the spirit greater, greater than usual liberty to torment Saul. Greater than usual liberty. Like it, it, this, this wicked spirit was assigned just to afflict Saul. Um, the devil, by the divine permission, troubled and terrified Saul by means of the corrupt humors of his body and passions of his mind, Henry says. Um, so, one other thing that I would say about this. Um, one commentary uh, mentioned this. We should not, by the way, be surprised that the evil spirit is from Yahweh. Right? That's what gets us upset, is that it says it's, this evil spirit is from God. Um, and yet, I just think that's an expression of his sovereign power. In, in a sense, there's only, they can only work by permission. So where else would it come from but from him who is sovereign over all things? However, being an evil spirit may not mean morally evil as we sometimes suppose. And this commentary goes on and says, look, this may have been, this may, well, the adjective ra'ah can refer to what gives pain, misery, distress, or calamity. Maybe not an evil spirit, but a spirit from the Lord that just is afflicting him, is... um, giving him pain, distress, calamity. So a spirit of calamity, spirit of distress, something along those lines. But nonetheless, we, we can make sense of this by, by understanding it as the sovereign power of God over everything, everything, even the evil spirits. Um, what of Christians... What of Christians who have the Spirit? What of God's elect who have the Spirit? Can the same thing happen? Um, 1 John 4.4 You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. If the Spirit abides in you, by God's grace and by his power, then there is no possibility of demon possession. There is no possibility of the sort of affliction where you're given over. But you must be in the Lord. You must be in the Spirit. The Spirit must have worked in you. And, um, you know, that you think of what, um, what Job Thirteen, fifteen says, though he slay me, yet I will believe in him. That's not what Saul says ever. Right? The spirit departs Saul, he's afflicted, and, and his words and behavior then from that point are wickedness. Right? But, Saul, but Job in the midst of it can say, though he slay me. That's a spirit of affliction, that's a spirit of calamity that's come upon him, and he says, God kill me, I'm still going to believe in you. Um, quite a difference there, right? Uh, now, think of Psalm 51. What, what does David say in the midst of that? And it's always the verse that's caused you to question the whole psalm. 
take not your spirit from me, right? Take not your spirit from me. Undoubtedly, David is thinking of Saul. Undoubtedly, David is thinking of, of, of this king having, having he, he saw that any goodness he had was taken away and then him being given over to evil. And then David sins in a terrible way, right? He commits, he commits um, adultery and is complicit in murder. And he's sitting there thinking about what God did to Saul. And he's saying, God, take not your spirit from me. I think he's thinking back of Saul. I think he's thinking of this experience. He's, and, and he knew Saul, right? This passage shows us that they spent much time together. And in fact, that David was what? David was his, his armor bearer, right? His sort of constant assistant, his armor bearer. Right, the man who prepared and readied him for battle, the man who was by his side, the man who would, um, who would be with him. And they had a love for one another. And, and so that is David contemplating his own sin in light of Saul's apostasy. And that is, that is um, quite a thought. David is pleading with the Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, the, the other thing I'll say about this is Christians, we've been going through the Westminster Confession and the officer training and that in section 18 on assurance, it, it talks about there are times when Christians, uh, that, that the light ha- departs from even from Christians, that there are times when assurance is, is very low and there, there's a sense of of feeling forsaken by the Lord. Um, and, and so there, there's an experience somewhat of, of this uh, departure of the Spirit. But then it goes on and it says, but there, there's always a seed. There's always a seed of faith that remains in the believer. Right? Though the, the believer can, can, in the midst of affliction, though he's crying out to God and wondering why, can still say, though he slay me, yet I will believe in him. And the Christian, the elect, will always say that. Will always say that. But the experience may be very close to what Saul is experiencing here. It, and you may question, right? You're going to be pouring yourself out in prayer and questioning these things and wondering and, and, and thinking, has, has, you know, where is the light of God's countenance toward me? And, and crying out to him. And so um, the confession is helpful on that. The Holy Spirit was not taken from David. And his prayer was answered, even though his sin was great. The Spirit was not taken from him, and he finished well. Um, Saul never had the Spirit. And so what good he had from the Spirit, was ta- what little he had from the Spirit, was taken away from him and replaced with affliction. Um, Saul receives therapy. Saul receives therapy, not from the Spirit of God, which is where we want true therapy to come from, but through uh, a different means. Um, through the means of music. The, the men who are with, with Saul get, um, I mean, by the providence of God, find David, who's skillf- a skillful musician, Right, and 
and he comes and plays the harp at the times when the Holy Spirit is, or not the Holy Spirit, but this evil spirit is afflicting Saul. At those specific times, and when the music is played, the, what does it say, he was refreshed and well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. And that's a pretty amazing statement, that, that God in his sovereignty would use music in order to soothe him, and it would be a trigger for that evil spirit leaving him. Uh, the powerful, th- this um, one commentary said, the powerful influence um, of music upon the state of the mind was well known even in the earliest times, so that wise men of ancient Greece recommended music to soothe the passions, to treat mental diseases, and even to check tumults among the people, right? To stop fighting among the people. So even the ancient Greeks would use music in this way. And, um, and then I, I, you begin thinking of, or I do anyway, I always think of Augustine, what Augustine said of music in his confessions. You know that music was an important part of his conversion. He went to Basil's church, not Basil, um, Ambrose's church in Milan and was overcome by the beauty of the music. But it led to a dilemma in him, and and he says this in his confessions. He says, The delights of this sense of hearing had a stronger grip and a greater authority over me, but you loosed the bond and set me free. Yet now when I hear sung in a sweet and well-trained voice those melodies into which your words breathe life, I do, I admit, feel some pleasurable relaxation, though not of the kind which would make it difficult for me to tear myself away. For I could get up and leave when I like. Nevertheless, they do demand a place of some dignity in my heart so that they may be received into me together with the words that give them life. And it is not easy for me to give them exactly the right place. So he's just, he's trying to figure out the power of music. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, what, what does it do? For sometimes it seems to me that I am giving them more honor than is right. I may feel that when these holy words themselves are well sung, our minds are stirred up more fervently and more religiously into a flame of devotion than if they were not sung so well. And I realize that the emotions of the Spirit are various, each by some secret kind of correspondence capable of being excited by its own proper mode of voice or song. But I am often deceived by this pleasure of my flesh, to which the mind should not not be given over to be enervated. But at other times when I am over-anxious to avoid being deceived in this way, I fall into the error of being too severe, so much so that I would like banished both from my ears and those of the church as well as the whole melody of sweet music that is used with David Psalter. And the safer course seems to be that of Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, who, as I have often been told, made the reader of the psalm employ so small a model, modulation of the voice that the effect was more like speaking than singing. So he's like, you know, I, it's sometimes I'd just like to get rid of music entirely. That very much resonated with me as a, a student of music. But then I remember the tears I shed at the singing in the church at the time when I was beginning to recover my faith. I remember that now I am moved not by the singing, but by the things that are sung, when they are sung with a clear voice and correct modulation. And once again, 
I recognize the great utility of this institution. So I fluctuate between the danger of pleasure and my experience of the good that can be done. I am inclined on the whole, though I do not regard this opinion as irrevocable, to be in favor of the practice of singing in church so that by means of the delight in hearing the weaker minds may be roused to a feeling of devotion. Nevertheless, whenever it happens to me that I am more moved by the singing than by what is sung, I confess that I am sinning and I would prefer not to hear the music. So there's this, I mean, our experience of music is that it is powerful, right? Our experience of music is that it's very powerful to sway the heart, to sway the affections and the emotions. And that is its purpose. It is meant to beautify words so that our our devotion is lifted up so that our, our hearts are swayed in devotion to God. I think it's so that, um, I think words are sung to ma- be made beautiful so that in singing them there's a delight in the object we're singing about. It's a means to an end. It's a means to the worship of God. And, and um, again, the um, this is... I mean, think now of the influence that this music had over, over Saul. Every time he's afflicted, he turns to David and says, play. And the spirit departs from him and he's soothed. This is my experience when I was dealing with intense anxiety every day. What helped were two things, prayer and music. Those were the two things. I would pray to God and I would walk and listen to psalms that, that were sung. Um, I sent an email to Jody Killingsworth, and I said, um, your music literally got me through the last two months. It was three things, sorry. It was my wife, prayer, and song. In, and in that order, actually. Um, and so, uh, you know, g- God... God has given us music for this purpose, um, to soothe our souls, to draw our devotion to him. It can be used, like all good things, it can be used improperly. It can stir up your devotion to the world as well. Um, And this this can be done by classical music. This can be done by rock and roll. It doesn't matter. I remember hearing German leader when I was a student of music at at IU, and and it, it just made me love sensuality and love the world. Right? It was just so sensual that it, 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 I just wanted to, to wallow in it. You know, I wanted to feel all the self-pity in the world that I could when I heard that music. And, that is, and so that's the power being used for, for evil. But it can be used for what is good, devotion to God. Every, uh, most times when, when music is mentioned in the Old Testament and its purpose in the temple, it says that music exists because God's mercies are everlasting. It's interesting how that phrase keeps coming back when it speaks of music, but that is what music testifies to if sung well and in devotion to him and about him, right? That is why God has given us, that's why harmonies work, right? That's why we have these things. Um, The prophets used to prophesy with music. Did you know that? Um, 1 Samuel 10, 
where is it, verse 5, uh, afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, is this it? Yeah. And it shall be as soon as you have come to the city there that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Prophesying with music. Um, Elijah. There's the example of Elijah in First, uh, what is it? First Chronicles 25. Where is it? First Chronicles 25? No, but that's a good one. Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for service some of the sons of Asaph and Haman and Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Prophesy with music. Now, you know, that's a strange concept. Um, prophesy is not always about predicting the future. It's often about telling forth truth, right? And so this music, this prophesying with music was to tell forth the truth of God, tell forth the truth of Scripture. And um, there's the example of, it's Elijah who um, calls for musicians, and the musicians play, and then he's stirred up to be able to prophesy, right? And so um, music has this, this place um, that is, is right and good. And um, just think of God, God's gift to Saul through David. He was skillful at the harp, and as he played the harp, the affliction retreated from Saul. I mean, that's merciful of God to provide that. He's taken the spirit away. He sent an afflicting spirit, and now he sent David in order to relieve that affliction by playing. Now look at the description of David. David, David is the young man, one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician. And then generally today we don't think of these things in relation to skillful musicians, right? He's a mighty man of valor, a warrior. He's one prudent in speech. He's a handsome man and the Lord is with him. And that is the key here. I mean, that, that last phrase, the Lord is with him. All the other things are things he can do. All the other things are outward appearance. And that makes for a terrible king. That's what Saul was. He was handsome. He was a, a, a head taller than everybody. The Lord was not with him. And now David will take Israel and be a, one after God's own heart. Remember that description of David. Man after God's own heart and would take Israel in a different direction. Uh, Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. Um, and so a, a wonderful bond takes place between them, which only makes the rest of the story all that much um, more tragic. David serves him. David... It, Saul attempts to kill David, and David continues to serve him. And then Saul chases him, and David has many opportunities to do harm to Saul, and he won't because it's the Lord's anointed, right? Even though he's been anointed, he says this is the Lord's anointed. He's not about to usurp the position of Saul. And, and so we see David's godliness in that, and we see the recklessness of Saul as well. Um, remember 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, very, um, 
very close to what we've said. Do not look as his, at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? So now there's a man after God's own heart in David, and the Lord is with him. Um, so think about this. Do you have a tendency to to um, judge by appearances and distrust what, um, what the Spirit's work is doing in somebody. It's one of the things we can gain from here. Of course, there's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of things that we learn about God's work and the picture that, that David is of the coming Messiah, right? It, the, um, the, he, he is the, He's the ultimate picture of what one is to be um, as the king, um, other than Jesus Christ, the, the penultimate, right? And so we learn a lot about that, but just the simple factor of inward and outward. Inward and outward. We get so easily caught up in inward and outward, and the outward is so deceiving, right? We have a tendency to, to um, trust the pretty, and distrust the ugly. That's wickedness. It's terrible. Um, we should not do that. Uh, we should, we should um, speak to somebody and find out what's inside. Um, get to know them uh, better than uh, just outward appearance. right? But think about this. Again, um, think about the place of music. Uh, think about how it is powerful and how it sways you in one direction, toward devotion or away from devotion. I'll pick on, um, I'll pick on, on Ben. As I came into the office this evening, <laughs> no, I'm not going to. Um, let's just say there was music on in the other room that was not tending toward devotion. And I just thought, isn't that, isn't that interesting that that would happen on the night I'm preaching on this passage? Um, It wasn't his fault, okay? I'll just say that. It wasn't his fault. Um, but it was his fault. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to mention what song was playing, but, um, but, but be careful about this. It is powerful. It is powerful. That's why people pay hundreds of dollars to go see bands for, in, for a two-hour concert. It is powerful, right? It had the power to take an evil spirit away from an ungodly man. Right? What kind of power? What kind of power does it have over us? It should bend us toward the good. We should delight in it and um, use it well. Uh, everything good can be used um, in bad ways. Right? Everything good can be used poorly. Marriage can turn into a disaster. Um, sex can be used to afflict and to hurt. When God means those things to be used for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you discipline us as sons and that you... Uh, there are times when you, you give us affliction. 
to build us up, to cause us to depend upon you, to cause us to learn how to love others who are suffering the same things. And so, Father, we, we, and yet we see Saul and we're warned again. We're warned not to grieve the Spirit. We pray along with David, take not your Holy Spirit from us. Father, we pray that we would give right place to the things in this world that you've given to us to enjoy. Uh, Pray that we would avail ourselves of the good of these things. And that we would be, uh, we would be uh, praising you by means of music. Thank you that for, for many of us, music has been a way to uh, soothe uh, hurts. That music has been a way to uh, cause affliction to be bearable. Father, that it has been a way uh, simply to enjoy uh, your, your glory. Certainly in our worship, that is the case, and I pray that we would give it right place. Father, I pray that we would be servants as David was a servant, even to Saul, even to one who, who would come to afflict him, that he still had respect for Saul's office. It was a, as a, a man, he was very dangerous to him, and yet we see David with the mind of Christ the mind of Christ where he could say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Lord, we thank you for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.